to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be talking about the case of N and ACCG, and the citation for this case is 2017 UKSC 22. And the focal point of this case is N, who is a severely disabled young man and requires constant round-the-clock care. His parents could not work with the local authority to meet N's needs, and so a care order was originally put in place when N was only 8 years old. When N eventually became an adult and turned 18, this care order expired, but it was replaced with equivalent orders made under the Mental Capacity Act 2005. N is now in his 20s and is cared for by the NHS, and all parties in this case agree that this is in the best interests of N because of the nature of his disabilities and the care that is required. However, there are two questions that still remain open, and this is what this case is all about. Firstly, would it be possible for N to visit the family home, or would he have to always stay in the care home? And secondly, could N's mother assist with intimate care when she was visiting him at the care home? On both of these counts, the family were obviously keen to be involved in N's care as much as possible and wanted the local authority to support them in this endeavour. However, in response to these requests, the ACCG, which stands for a clinical commissioning group, the particular one is obviously remaining anonymous for the purposes of this case, they responded to these two requests as follows. Firstly, in response to whether N could visit the family home, This would require trained carers and would necessitate extra funding which the authority simply didn't have. In terms of the second request, which was for N's mother to help and assist with the intimate care of N within the care home environment, N's family had not undertaken training to help them actually move and handle N in a safe and responsible way. And so, for the purposes of the authority, this raised serious concerns about their ability to help N in this aspect of his life. When the family received this response, they sued the authority and argued that their request should be met as it is in the best interest of N, and we'll often talk about this as being the focal point of medical law. Only this week we saw in the case of Charlie Gard, the young nine-month-old baby who is currently on life support, that again the best interests of the child or of the disabled person is of paramount importance in these types of cases. In response, the authority said that the best interest test should not however be used to try and apply some pressure on the authority to provide extra funding which simply wasn't there. When the case first went to court, the judge agreed with this view of the authority and said that the current plan is in N's best interest and that the extra funding does not need to be applied for these added benefits. In the original case when this went to court, the judge agreed with this view of the authority that the current plan that was in place is indeed in N's best interest, and the extra funding does not need to be applied to these two requests from the family. The Court of Appeal then agreed with this view, before the case moved to the Supreme Court, which is where we're going to pick it up now. The important place to start when analysing this judgement is to note the difference between the judicial review and this case that considers the judgement of the Court of Protection. 
A judicial review allows for the challenging of specific decisions by a local authority, but this is very different to the power of the Court of Protection under the Mental Capacity Act 2005. Lady Hale made this point as part of a unanimous judgment and noted that the power of the Court of Protection is very much limited to making the sort of decisions that N would have been able to make if he had the capacity to do so. Examples in this particular context might include appointing a deputy, deciding where N wants to live, and also whether N should have contact with certain people. However, it does not go so far as compelling third parties, such as the authority in this case, to act in a certain way or spend funding in a certain way. Quite simply, this is beyond the remit of the Court of Protection as per the Mental Capacity Act. A quite useful comparison was actually made with the family court system and the scenario where a parent does not want to have contact with the child. The court cannot step in and say, well, the parent needs to have contact with the child, so we're going to force them to. They have to respect the wishes of that parent and can't force them to act in a certain way. In a similar vein then, the Court of Protection can't order the authority to spend money or act in a certain way either. Overall then, I think that this is a relatively straightforward decision as it's based on a fundamental misunderstanding of the role of the Court of Protection. When we think about the wider picture, the courts should not be making decisions about funding because this is really close into veering into politics. Clearly the spending of public money is a policy decision, as we can see with the election that's going on right now. Perhaps a more interesting question that we can ask and arises out of this case is what would have happened if there had been a judicial review rather than an application to the Court of Protection? The most likely ground for judicial review that would apply in this scenario would be irrationality. But when we're looking at irrationality, we have to apply the high standard of the Wensbury unreasonableness test. The quote from this case is that something has to be so outrageous in its defiance of logic or of accepted moral standards that no sensible person who had applied his mind to the question could have arrived at it. It seems very unlikely then that this decision that was made with respect to N would actually fall within this definition because the decision that was made by the local authority was done so on the basis of the limited funding that they have. Furthermore, the level of care that is currently being provided for N is not damaging or detrimental to N in any way, and so it would be unlikely that the courts would feel the need to step in and almost take over that decision-making of the local authority. The overall reality of this case is that in an ideal world, yes, N would be able to make home visits to see his family, and furthermore his own family would be able to be more involved in the care that N does receive in the care home. But the truth of the matter is that all of this costs a lot of money, and we've seen with cuts to social care and other cuts to local authority budgets that this simply isn't going to happen at the moment, and probably will not be able to happen in the future either the focus has to be on using that limited funding that is there to help as many people as the local authority can within their budgets. Well, thank you very much for listening to another episode of the UK Law Weekly podcast. 
Um, thank you as ever to bensound.com who provide the music. A quick note for you before I leave, just to say that I would like you to check out my new website if you do get a chance. You can visit that at uklawweekly.com. I post news articles there on a regular basis and you can also have access there to all of the previous podcast episodes and all of my YouTube videos all on one handy site. So I hope you get a chance to check that out. Thanks very much for listening. Bye.